Well, good evening. Um, I brought up with me today, uh, I don't know if you can see this, it's a feelings wheel. Uh, we used this a lot um, last semester uh, in our quads, our, our small groups. We would kick off the quads typically with the same, this question, what are two emotions that you've felt uh, on the feelings wheel, and then would you tell us a story behind one of them? One of the things that I've learned from using this feelings wheel um, last semester, last year, is just how often I'm afraid. I live in a lot of fear. Uh, until I used the feelings wheel, I didn't really recognize that about myself. And frankly, it's not something that I'm happy to admit. Um, it's uncomfortable confessing fear. Um, it's a very vulnerable emotion. And I don't like being vulnerable. To be honest, I don't want you to know that I'm a weak person. I don't want you to know my Achilles heel. I don't want you to know that you can hurt me. But it's important that I'm honest about this with myself. It's important that I'm honest about it with you uh, and certainly with God. If I'm afraid, it's important that I say I'm afraid. And here's why. God is always going to meet us where we're at. But so often we miss him because we don't know where we're at. Maybe we're so busy and we don't take our pulse. We don't stop to reflect. How am I really doing? We don't stop to listen. Or maybe we don't like where we're at, so we lie and we pretend. We puff out our chest sort of like a puffer fish and we project strength when really we're afraid. What happens? Right? What happens when we puff and we bluff? We hurry through life without taking our pulse. Well, if we don't know our address, we don't know where we're at, we're going to miss God's address to us. If we don't know where we're at, we will have a hard time seeing God who is meeting us there. Does this make sense? Tonight I want to talk to you about fear. And I want to start by drawing you into my own life into my own heart. Last year was a scary year in a lot of ways. Last year started with lots of forest fires ravaging Australia and then the American West. Then came COVID. Classes were canceled. Businesses started shutting down. People lost their jobs. And Megan and I were worried for our own. We saw innocent black men and women being killed by police. We saw ugly lies about the election and conspiracy theories gain traction. We saw gun sales soar. And then we saw an attack on the U.S. Capitol. And all of this frightened me, and in some ways it still does. But something else happened over the summer that shook me and it shakes me still. It haunts me to this day. In August, a boy in Willis' class was on a camping canoe trip with his parents. His parents lost sight of him for a couple of minutes. They called out his name. They couldn't find him. And then they found him face down in the water. He had drowned. This is my biggest fear. It is the fear that something awful, something tragic is going to happen to Willa. And this thing that I dread the most showed up and it took a boy's life, and it devastated his family, and it has rocked mine. 
Someone described being a parent as having your heart walk outside of your chest. Once upon a time, my heart lived in here, inside my chest. It was protected and shielded by a rib cage. But the minute Willa was born, my heart was ripped out of my chest, and it now lives outside of me. My heart jumping off the couch. My heart learning how to ride a bike. My heart on skis. My heart strapped into a car seat. My heart someday going to college. Out there, vulnerable. Ever since Willa was born, I have never felt so exposed, so vulnerable, so helpless and out of control. And it gets worse every day because I fall more in love with her. (laughs) And so my exposure increases. This sense of heightened vulnerability and out of controlness can easily spiral into panic. When we feel threatened and afraid, our body readies us to fight or to take flight. But today I want to suggest that there is a third strategy, if that's what you want to call it. Instead of fight or flight, I want you to think about sight. Not fleeing, or I would say not fighting or fleeing, but seeing. Revelation is a pulling back the curtain to show us invisible realities. Things that are real and true, but are largely unseen or ignored or simply forgotten. Right away, this book, the Revelation, it wants to focus our energy and attention on Jesus. Right out of the gate, right? On who he is and what he is like. Uh, In a way, Revelation is not going to waste any time. There is an urgency to this. You need to know who Jesus is right away. I mentioned last week that Revelation is a pastoral letter, too. It's not just a pulling back the curtain, but it's a pastoral letter as well. And as a letter, it addresses the fears, doubts, and concerns of its audience. People who who, who received this letter in the first century, they had a, a lot of fear. And people in the 21st century, like you and me, we have a lot of fear, too. And right away, we see that Jesus meets us in our fear. But what Jesus How do you see him? How you answer this question has real, profound, and practical implications. You see, maybe the reason you're so afraid is because your view of Jesus is so small. Maybe the reason you're so afraid is because your view of Jesus is so small. As I was pulling this message together, I stumbled upon the writings of a pastor and commentator named Scotty Smith. And with some humor, he listed a couple of popular perceptions of Jesus. The first one that he mentions is uh, Buddy Jesus, right? Or what he calls shampoo commercial Jesus or motivational speaker Jesus, right? This is Buddy Jesus, right? He's clean and he's fresh. He's a good model. He inspires people to try to look their best, to be their best, to feel their best. Buddy Jesus, shampoo commercial Jesus, he presents easy tips for a successful life. He bids you to come and to follow him into comfort and hassle-free living. There's more. There's coloring page Jesus. Coloring page Jesus is flat and lifeless. 
Despite the familiar stories, he's never come off the page and felt alive. There's family movie Jesus. (laughs) Family movie Jesus is a nice guy with kind eyes. He's one-dimensional. He glides through the world spouting parables. He's somehow above the fray. He's the last guy in the scene you'd ever expect to start swinging a sword. There's church statue Jesus. He's old and dusty and institutional. He's a relic from a bygone era. He's interesting to look back on, but he's not very relevant when it comes to everyday life. And finally, there's bendable Jesus. Okay? Bendable Jesus is moldable. Bendable Jesus always fits who you think he should be. You can fit him into any viewpoint or political cause that you like. Here's the kicker. You can shape him, but he never shapes you. (laughs) Needless to say, these popular portrayals or perceptions of Jesus do little to allay your fears. Buddy Jesus, coloring page Jesus, family movie Jesus, church statue Jesus, bendable Jesus, they are all fictions and figments of our imagination. They are false. They're not who Jesus really is. And consequently, they have no power to save you. And this is why we need apocalypsis. This is why we need revelation, this pulling back the curtain. We need our vision corrected. Not simply that we would see Jesus correctly, but that we would see ourselves and our situation correctly too. In the passage that we're looking at tonight, John is given a vision that is meant to quell his and our anxious hearts. The passage begins with John hearing a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. I mentioned this last week, but seven is an important number. It's John's favorite. He uses it a ton in the book. It symbolizes completeness and wholeness. Seven churches means the complete whole church, the church universal in all times, in all places. I like to call it the church with a big C. There, right, for you. There are a lot of little C churches, churches like Church at the Well and New King and Cross Point here in Chittenden County. But when you add up all of these churches and you add up all the churches all around the globe, what you get is the big C church, right, or the seven churches. In verse 12, John turns around to see the voice of who's addressing him. And what he sees is seven golden lampstands. We're told in verse 20 that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. But if you look closely into this circle of lampstands, who or what do you see? John answers, I see one like a son of man. Now, this is one of those phrases that could easily pass us by, but it was full of significance for John and his first century readers. Son of man is a title or nickname for the Messiah. We do this sort of thing uh, even in our own day with our rock stars. If I'm talking about music and I say the boss, who am I talking about? You don't know Bruce Springsteen. He's the boss. (laughs) What about the king? Elvis. Elvis. All right. Yeah, the king. Elvis. The boss. Bruce Springsteen. Queen B. Who's Queen B? Of course, right? So we do this. We know this. And in some ways, the first century is the same thing. It was like name dropping. 
I saw the Son of Man. Everyone's like, oh, he's talking about the Messiah. He sees the Messiah in the center of these golden lampstands. He sees Jesus. Now what follows is a very symbolic rendering of who Jesus is. And I want you to pay attention to how many times John uses the word like in this passage. Right? It's all over the place. He says his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like polished bronze, etc. The technical word for this is simile. He's using simile. He's using poetry. This is a poetic, symbolic vision of who Jesus really is. Now what I want to do is I want to take you and I, and I want to take in uh, the big picture. And I'm going to comment on some of the symbolic details. But then I want to zoom in on three very specific details and press their importance for you and me today. Okay? The first thing that John says about Jesus is where he is found. Okay, the second detail is what he is wearing. Well, one of the first things that we often notice about a person is the way that they are dressed. If in a distance I see a woman in a white coat with a stethoscope around her neck, I put two and two together and I'm like, she's a doctor. <laughs> if you see someone with a neon vest and a hard yellow hat, you're like, that guy's a construction worker. Here, Jesus is wearing the uniform of a priest or a king. Note the long robe and the golden sash around his chest. His white hair symbolizes his wisdom. His eyes, like fire, signifies he's not only pure, but he's purifying. He doesn't just look at us. He sees through us. He sees everything there is to know about us which is at once scary, but also liberating. His feet like bronze means he's strong and firm and steady. Jesus is not flaky. He's trustworthy. Who he is and what he stands for lasts forever. His voice, like the sound of many waters, is awe-inspiring in its power and beauty. Like a waterfall, his voice drowns out all other voices. And yet, like the sound of water falling over rocks, it leaves us with peace and inner quiet. In his hand, his right hand, he holds seven stars. Now, in the first century, the seven stars would clearly refer to the seven known planets at the time. So what does this mean? What does this convey? We sing in Sunday school, if you ever went to Sunday school, he's got the whole world in his hands, but not just ours, right? All of them. He holds the universe, the cosmos in his hands. From his mouth emerges a sword, a sharp two-edged sword. We might say he's a straight shooter. His words are clear and true. They cut through pretense and nonsense. There is no BS or spin that comes from Jesus' mouth. And finally, his face, like the sun, brilliant and warm. We use figures of speech like this even today. We say, oh, their face was beaming. Right? I picture Jesus here uh, with a big smile on his face. If this is 
a big sort of overview, I now want to zero in on three very specific details from this picture. First, I want you to notice where Jesus is. I want you to notice where Jesus is. Jesus is in our midst. He's in our midst. He is not above us looking down. He is not on the outside looking in. He's in the middle. He's in the middle of his church. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Jesus is uniquely Emmanuel because uh, the Christian belief maintains that God actually became a man and lived amongst us. He really suffered everything that you and I would suffer. He doesn't remain aloof or detached. Like, he entered in. But he's with us in a, in a way that's hard for us, I think, to imagine or to fathom. He's, he's with us right now by his invisible spirit. He's present to you and to me in a very real way right now. And this is why he can say, as he does in the next chapter, I know your struggles. I know your hard work. I know your fear. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. I know your loneliness. And he knows this intimately because he's not far off. He's in our midst. Now, the most common repeated command in the Bible is don't be afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Isaiah 43.5. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. Jeremiah 46.28. More than 30 times in the Bible we are given this command. Fear not or don't be afraid. But what's interesting about this command is unlike other commands like don't murder or don't steal or don't commit adultery, we're not told to try harder or told to repent. It's a command, but then the very next thing that we get is a promise. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. Because I'm with you. Let's say Willa wakes up in the middle of the night. She's had a nightmare. And she's dreamt of a volcano or a grizzly bear or some monster. If you get to know my daughter, you know those are her biggest fears. Right? <laughs> she wakes up in the middle of the night with a nightmare. In that moment, I don't explain to her the geology of New England and how volcanoes aren't a real and present danger here. I don't do that. <laughs> I don't lay out the facts about grizzly bears versus black bears or the non-existence of vampires. You know what I do? I do what your parents probably, probably did with you. I simply hold her. I don't have to say anything. I just snuggle with her. And in so doing, I let her know you are not alone. I'm with you. The truth is there are a lot of things that are scary in this world. The truth is there are lots of good reasons. There really are. There are a lot of good reasons for you to be afraid and anxious. But for so many of us, and I'd venture to say all of us, the fear isn't so much of the thing as it is having to face or suffer it alone. 
right, by ourselves. God says, that doesn't have to be true of you. I'm with you. In the Bible, we are likened to sheep. And sheep are some of the most vulnerable, helpless, even stupid creatures on the planet. I want to emphasize the vulnerable and helpless thing here right now, right? Sheep are some of the most vulnerable, helpless creatures on the planet. There is no sense in telling a sheep to toughen up. And there's no sense in telling them that wolves aren't real, because they are. What sheep need, and what you and I need, is a shepherd. You see, the dark and the scary things are still going to exist. But now we have someone leading us through it. I'm with you. The next thing that I want you to see is that Jesus has his hands on you. He's not just with you, but he has his hands on you. In verse 16, we are told that Jesus holds the universe in the palm of his right hand, right? His hand of power. But then when John falls on his face in fear, that same right hand, the hand that holds the stars, the hand that holds the planets, the hand that holds the cosmos, it rests on John. And it rests on you too. The hands that hold the universe hold you too. When we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands, the whole world includes you and me and Willa. Includes us. I told a friend the other day, reflecting on this verse, if Willa were ever to slip through my hands, she would land in his. That's what this is teaching me. If she were to ever slip through my hands, she would fall into his. If the hands that hold the universe are upon me and are upon the ones that I love, I can let go of some control. I don't have to be so tight-fisted. I don't have to white-knuckle my way through life. This is a takeaway uh, of this passage for me. And it brings us to our final point, the very last thing that I want you to see and to hear. In verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, Fear not, don't be afraid. And it's not just because he's with us, and it's not just because he's got his hand on us. It's, he says, don't be afraid because I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. What does this mean? The very least it means this. When you worship Jesus, you are not worshiping an idea. You are not worshiping a dead guy who lived some 2,000 years ago. You are worshiping the living God who is here right this very moment just beyond the curtain, right? Just beyond the veil. He is alive and well, friends. He sees you. He knows you. And he loves you. And right this very moment, he is both telling this to you and he's also talking about you to his father. When you think of it, all of our fears boil down to one fear, which is the fear of death. Right? They may be nuanced and they might have their own diagnoses, 
and they may be treated differently, but at the end of the day, it's all the same fear deep, deep down, right? It's the fear of death. And what Jesus is saying is that all of it and all of you is under my watch and control. There is nowhere you can go where Jesus hasn't gone already. There is nowhere that you can go that falls outside of his power or purview. He is not going to lose track of you. Your death is not a dead end, but a door. It has keys. Your death is not a dead end. It's a door. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he says it's a door that takes you home. And it leads you smack dab into his loving arms. You do not need to be afraid. I am with you, Jesus says, and I've got my hands on you. And death is not a dead end, but a door. He says, look at me, John. Look at me, UVM students. I am alive. I will see you through this life into the next. You do not need to be afraid. Now, of course, I, John Minan, I'm still going to get afraid in this life. I am. I'm going to find myself here on this feeling wheel a lot. Things are going to happen. I'm going to get triggered. I'm going to get triggered. But I have the benefit, and you do too, of knowing who to go with, with our fears. He's there already. He's meeting us where we are at. Right? In our fear. Which is why you don't need to fight. You don't need to flee. You only need to see. To behold Jesus. The Son of Man who is with us. The hands that hold the universe having a grip on you. And not even death can stop him. Let's pray.